effect. As I looked at these verses this week, by the way, if you're out here, you have your smartphones or maybe even your tablets, you can fo follow along with the PowerPoints that I have. Um, our world's really bad right now, at least here in America. It's been coming for a while, but we're seeing more lawlessness, more acts of violence. A lot of these are aimed at the government, but what's happening in our culture is that we are trying to tear down traditions. The phrase uh, or the, the words cancel culture is huge right now. And even though it's not directed primarily at the church, at some point down the road it'll turn back to the church again. When Peter wrote this, he was writing to a group of Christians that were being persecuted violently. And he is talking now about something that is very important. And uh, I've, I've entitled the message today, Challenging Culture. And what we need to know today from, these, from this one verse, uh, Peter gives us three things here. Number one, he says, to, tells us to enthrone Christ on your heart. Now you'll notice the call here, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The word honor, hagiozo. Hagiozo means to regard as holy, to sanctify, or to enthrone. So there's some sense in which Christ is regarded. All of this is within one word. I like what Robert Johnson said in his commentary, Honor Christ as holy means to set apart, to enshrine as an object of supreme and absolute reverence, as free from all defilement. So the way that we honor Christ is that we put him on the throne of our hearts. It means that we see Christ as our Lord and Savior. I've, I've been involved in this argument before. I've heard, I've heard people say, well, Christ is my Savior, but not my Lord. And I'm thinking, <laughs> the, you, you can't possibly mean that Christ is your Savior, but you're not going to enthrone him on your heart and be obedient to him. That's not what you possibly mean, right? Well, that just means that I'm going to do my life my way. And I go, well, that's not quite what, what salvation is. Uh, Jesus is our Savior, and he, ours, he is our Lord, and we're to put him on the throne of our hearts, which means to live a life that is set apart from the world and is dedicated to God. Now, Peter's saying this in a culture where Christians are being persecuted. He's saying, look, when this culture comes against you, the first thing that you must have right is who is in control of your life, because that will affect the few little lines we've got to follow here this morning. That will definitely affect and comes into play at the end of this verse. So Christ needs to be, you, you could put it this way, Peter's calling them to make sure that they are dedicated to the Lord. And that's one thing we've got to be careful about in our own Christian walk. Who is really on the throne of your heart? Who is really has uh, the primary position in your heart? Not your physical heart, but who you are as a person. 1 Peter 2.5 in the same epistle. 
You yourselves likewise, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The emphasis on being set apart to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, Peter borrows images from the Old Testament. The only people that could encounter God were the priests. And now Peter is telling them that you are a spiritual priesthood. You can go into the Holy of Holies, if you will, using Old Testament language. You can go into the very presence of God now. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. It is you now becoming a spiritual priesthood. So, to honor Christ the Lord is holy means primarily to keep him central in your heart. And of course the location is your heart. The call was to honor Christ the Lord is holy and the location is, he writes, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord. Cardia. That's where we get the word cardiac which is where we get our word for heart. Now that refers to the physical heart, but here we're talking about the spiritual heart. The word cardia means inner self, who you are as a person, who you are as an individual. It, it deals with the seat of emotions, the thoughts, the desires, the will, the intentions, the feelings. This is who you are as a person inside. So this is where Christ needs to take primacy. How many of you are there this morning where Christ is number one in your life? See, Peter's reminding them, before this culture comes crashing against you, you need to have that settled. That needs to be nailed down. The inner self is the origin of human behavior. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said this in Matthew 15, 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Because see, what, what we are inwardly will be reflected outwardly. So it's very even, well, when the Lord was here, he talked. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man. And what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man is dictated by what is in the heart. And so Peter Peter is saying, look, you've got, to get, you've got to get this relationship right with Christ. Because if it's not right with Christ, how you respond to the world and how you respond to others and how you, your relationship with God will be reflected. And so he says, enthrone Christ on your hearts. You're not able to see this out there, but on Facebook I'm showing a first century sanctuary. They were really quite small. Maybe the size of this. Uh, not all of them. Some of them were a little bigger. But most of them were small little sanctuaries where uh, maybe two or three people would go in. Here's, here's a metaphor for you. You need to set up a sanctuary in your heart for Christ. He needs to take ownership of your life. That means practically that I don't do it my way, I do it God's way. And listen to this, even when God's way is tough. Have you ever found that doing it God's way sometimes is difficult, particularly in the culture in which we live? 
people look at you and you say, well, where'd you get that? Well, I got that because I'm a Christian. I got that because I'm a follower of Christ. We're seeing a lot of issues with people not standing up. We need to have that sanctuary. We need to have that place in our hearts where Christ dwells. Secondly, Peter says, defend your faith. Now you say, Pastor, wait a minute. Peter doesn't use faith here. He uses the word hope. Those are really interchangeable. He calls them to defend their faith. He says, always be prepared. Het toimos which means a state of readiness. And, and I made a few notes here. And it also means this. Never be unprepared. Never be timid. Never be unwilling. He says be prepared. I remember a woman in my first church. I remember a woman in my first church. I was over at her house one day. And we got to talking about evangelism. And she told me this. She said, Pastor, you know, my faith is private. I said, well, what do you mean by that? She says, I don't, I don't talk to people about Jesus. And I encouraged her and tried to show her that we do have an obligation, folks. We do have an obligation to share our testimony. You've heard me say this at least 20 times. The easiest way to share your testimony is to share your story. How it was before Christ, how it was the day you accepted Christ, and how it is now with Christ. That's a powerful testimony. And it's simple. But Peter says, look, you've got to always be prepared, folks. You've got to always be ready. Always be ready to share the gospel. And then he says, not only to be ready, but to be willing. Listen to this. To make a defense. Apologia. Apologia. That sounds an awful lot like apology, which it is. We, we, we get the word uh, apologetic from. Um, uh, that means literally to defend yourself. Much like you would... Uh, martial arts, those that do the martial arts, you would defend yourself against. He's saying here to defend yourself. I've got a, for you out here, happens every Sunday, hi train. I've got a picture here of Ravi Zacharias. He died a couple of months ago. Ravi was one of the greatest Apologist of the 20th and 21st centuries combine. The way he would articulate his arguments, wonderful. And we know and believe because of the hope that he had that he's with Jesus in heaven. And I think that there's an issue. Some, some Christians will say, well, um, I'm going to leave that to the pastor. He knows a lot more than I do. Or I'm going to leave that to the deacon. Or I'm going to leave that to the specialist. You do realize who Peter's writing to here, right? 
He's writing to the average person. He's telling them to defend your faith. And I'm telling you this morning, defend your faith. Stand against those that come against you. Stand your ground. This, this is for everybody. There are, you are all apologists in some degree or another. Now, you may need to study a little more, and you may need to read up on some things, but you are all called, and I am called, to defend the faith against those who would come against us. All Christians are called to defend their faith, not just scholars and those that are trained. Not only does he say, be ready to defend your faith, be willing to defend your faith, but be engaging with others. To anyone who asks, the scope is all. That refers to anybody. Anybody. Your next door neighbor, your, your family, maybe even your, your, your spouse, your best friend. And the word ask, I tell is the word to ask for with urgency or even demanding an answer. Have you ever had somebody get in your face and say, tell me what you believe right now? Have you ever had that? They want to know. Peter says you have to be willing to make a defense on that. Practically what this means, I've got two gentlemen here talking. Practically what it means is in your daily life, in the casual daily life, you need to be able to share the gospel with somebody if they ask you. Maybe you're at the supermarket. Maybe you're at, the, at school. Wherever you are and somebody says, wow, why do you believe that? That is your opportunity to say, this is what I believe. And when, I'm not asking you to defend Martin Luther's dissertations or anything like that. We're just asking you to defend why you believe what you believe. That should be, that should be easy. You say, well, I believe Jesus because he's the Savior of the world. Start the conversation from there. The subject, this is what's important. The subject for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter doesn't use faith. Faith is the bedrock of the hope. So we assume that Peter means the faith of hope. For a reason for the hope that is in you. The reason is logia, which means a logical argument. And hope is el peace, which means a future expectation. So Peter here is really talking about the afterlife. That's not really a popular subject today, is it? <laughs> you know what? A lot of people want to know where they're going to go when they die. It's the expectation of a confident hope that we have. We know what's beyond this life, right, folks? We know that this is just a temporal situation. Eternity rests in our hearts. It's in you. That's what Peter says. For the hope that is in you. The hope meaning that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt where we are going in our lives. And I've been a pastor 30 years. And I've met some pretty tough characters in, in that time. But I can tell you this. 
when they're dying, they want to know how to go, as they say, to the good place. You may have somebody that's tough in your life, but don't give up on them. Remember, they're not too far gone that God can't reach down and save them. And they may talk a good game now, but when they're facing eternity, it's a game changer. And I'm talking about even young, even young people. Listen, you are not promised tomorrow. When I was 22, I thought I was going to live a long, long time. It happened to be the case. But I've seen a lot of stuff where young people die early. Our job is to help them see the life beyond. David Walls writes in his commentary, one of the distinguishing marks of believers in Christ is, in, is their possession of hope. Christian hope is to be so real and distinctive that non-Christians will be puzzled by it and ask for an explanation. We should seize the opportunities of witnesses presented in these kinds of situations. Let me say this, don't ever let us sit, don't let, if somebody's asking you about death and what happens after death, don't be afraid to tell them, this is the hope that I have. It is not a hope like wish, hold, gee, I hope it happens. It is a confident expectation that we know is coming. And this hope is in you. It's put there by the Holy Spirit. The great William Barclay said this, and I think it's very, very true. Our faith must be a first-hand discovery, not a second-hand story. People, I'm going to tell you something. In simple terms here, simple, simple way of putting it. For people to understand the gospel, they need to see it lived out in us. We know John 3.16, we know Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we know Romans 10.9 and 10. We know that, but we need to live it. We need to live what we believe. And when the people see the hope that is in us. Now listen to this. This is where Peter's driving. If when the people see the hope that is in us, they're going to go, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I noticed you're different. I noticed that you live your life totally different than how I live my life. Why is that? Oh, well, let me tell you why it is. Because Jesus changed my heart. Let me tell you my story. This is how I was before Christ. And then then the pastor, the chaplain, the deacon, or a friend uh, prayed with me the sinner's prayer, and that piques their curiosity. And then you talk about, and since then, I've, I still have problems. I still have, but my hope is in Christ. It is based 
on the foundational faith and hope that someday when I cross the finish line, I will see Christ. And then, by the way, tell them that hope is not something like, oh, gee, I hope that happens, but it is fixed hope. It is a fixed hope. That is a fact. And brothers and sisters, I've seen a lot of Christians die. And there's one thing that they all have in common. They were brave at the end. They knew they were crossing that finish line. I've, I've seen a bunch. And I'm going to tell you, we crossed that finish line. Billy Graham said, when you read about my death, don't believe it. <laughs> That's because Billy Graham's more alive today than he ever was in this life. We have the hope. Now, here's a real danger. He just got through saying, now, enthrone Christ on your hearts, defend your faith. But the real danger is to become overbearing. <laughs> I remember attending a revival service. I've preached revival services, it seems like a, a lifetime ago now. Um... But I have been in revival services, I'm talking down in the south, where the preacher is he's dangling people over the pit of hell. That, that kind of revival. That's overbearing. That's intimidation. Let the gospel do the intimidation part. We're just responsible for preaching it. I... I don't know if you guys, you probably haven't. I know you haven't. But uh, have you ever, if you ever get a chance, read Hanner's uh, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, to give you an example here, you read that sermon about a quarter of the way through it, you're probably falling asleep. But the day that he preached it, the day that he preached it, which they read their sermons back then. Aren't you, aren't you glad I don't read my sermons? Because <laughs> we'd be here a lot longer than we are now. Uh, the day that he preached it, people looked down. They were sitting in their pews. This is well written, well documented. They looked down and they saw the fires of hell below them. Yet the sermon was boring. By my standards, I, Jonathan Edwards, I just, their language was different. Maybe that's why I fell asleep reading it. But the day that he preached it, it was on fire. How did that happen? That's not the preacher. That's the Holy Spirit. The preacher has nothing to do with it. When I stand up here and preach Sunday after Sunday, I'm just preaching what God tells me. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit doing it. If he does anything with the, with the sermon, it, it will be his. You don't need to be overbearing. You don't need to tell them, listen here, you are going to hell. You don't need to do that kind of stuff. That may be true, but there's not, not the best way to do it. You don't want to do this. You don't want to try to cram it down their throat. You know the best way to do it is live your life. Live your life. Oh, and by the way, he says here, be gentle. Yet do it with gentleness. Prolotes, which means a gentle attitude, a spirit of meekness. One of my favorite theologians, D. Edmund Hebert, wrote this. 
Such gentleness is not to be confused with weakness. It is rather the manifestation of an inner strength that enables an attitude of humility. Gentleness basically is humility. Just love people. Don't be angry at them. Just love people. They see that love. They see that love. And that draws them. I, I think about it. Peter's writing us to a church that's being persecuted. They better get the throne on the heart thing right. They better be prepared to get to, to answer questions. But then when they answer the questions, make sure that they do it with gentleness. Because it's real easy to lash out at the lost. Particularly when their face, when their finger is in your face. It is real easy to lose control and open up. And slam back on them. Peter says you can't do that. Listen, listen, listen. Listen to this. That's what distinguishes us from the world. Look at our world, brothers and sisters. It is angry. This is the culture in which we live. We live in an angry culture. Our response, and I get it. I've blown it a few times myself. I get angry. I get that. I understand it. But when we, when we confront people one-on-one, -on -one, we must be very humble. Very gentle. When I think about my own salvation, I'm going to wrap this up because I know we're all hot. But when I think about my own salvation, I, I, I have excerpts from my life. And what I mean by excerpts is, I remember when I was in Germany, 19, I was 19 years old to... Uh, 19 and 20 years old over in Germany and I remember this Christian couple I took my uh, clothes and, and laundered them there in the laundromat next next to our building oh it was maybe a hundred yards from our building and they were playing Christian music I was too cool for that I was still listening to Foreigner, REO Speedwagon all that stuff that I listened to and they looked at me and I said what's that uh, and I got an answer. They said, that's Christian music. Have you ever heard it? And guess what they did? They shared the gospel with me. And again, I was at that time probably 19. And I said, that's interesting. My grandmother said the same thing. And I went away, didn't get saved, continued partying, going out with my friends. I don't mind sharing this with you. I've been saved for a long time now, so it's pretty safe. I get back to the States, and I have similar encounters with people that are Christians. Until one day, the army chaplain came and got me, took me down, and shared the gospel with me, and I got saved. Do you know what happened? All of those benchmarks came together at one time listen you may only share the gospel somebody else may lead them to faith to saving faith but your presence will establish 
some type of line where they hear it again, they hear it again, they hear it again, and all of a sudden they get saved. I'm grateful to that couple, young couple, that told me that there's an alternative to rock and roll. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I have since, as a believer, come to appreciate it. I'll see them again someday. The world needs to see gentleness. By the way, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Lastly, oh, wait a minute, I got another quote here. Thomas Schreiner. We're talking here about being respectful. Because he mentions, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The, the Greek word there for respect is phobos. That sounds like phobia. Kind of is. Now, wait a minute. That word means fear. So wait a minute, Pastor, what you're saying is I'm supposed to be gentle with these people and fear them. No, it's a definite uh, direction in our relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. A second is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in our relationship with our neighbor, we're to be gentle, but we're to do it under the watchful eye of God in awe and reverence. Now, to the quote. Thomas Schreiner wrote this in his commentary. Those who fear God and live in humility. Listen to this. This is important. Those who fear God and live in humility will treat their opponents with dignity and refrain from lashing out against them. What Peter emphasized, however, is the relationship with God that enables believers to respond appropriately to unbelievers. Having looked at this word, Thomas Schreiner is right. It's in our relationship with God. So here you have, be humble, be humble with unbelievers, and be respectful of God. Look at it this way. Meekness, fear of God should be balanced. If you go like this, you're out of balance. You need to have a balance. Humility towards unbelievers and fearfulness of God or awe of God. And I think people will see it. So this is what I want, want us to do today. First of all, put Christ on the throne of your heart. If you're not saved, see me after church. We'll talk about salvation. Maybe you're here today and you realize that your relationship's not right with God even though that you're saved. That can happen. Come see me. Talk with the deacon. Defend your faith. Just give an answer. 
even if the answer is I don't know I know you've heard me say this before if you don't know the answer to something say well you know what that's a really good question I don't know the answer to it but I'm gonna call my pastor I'm gonna call my deacon I'm gonna call my friend who really knows this stuff well um, and I'm gonna get back to you and then go talk to the pastor the pre uh, your friend whoever the deacons talk to them get the answer and then go back and say this you asked me this question <coughs> lastly don't be overbearing people don't need a right cross or an uppercut what they need is a path to the cross and we have that great opportunity to do that yeah we live in a challenging culture but brothers and sisters we can win this if we'll practice these three things